0: Prayer has many times been something that has been assumed about church people, and so I wanted to do a sermon series that kind of explains what exactly are we doing, what, what exactly is prayer, and what does prayer do, what does it not do, but, but what more importantly should it produce out of us? And as I was thinking about that and wondering what context you come from, what preconceived ideas you have about prayer, I realized that perhaps the... The more popularized idea of prayer is the connection between prayer and meditation. And I even have some pastor friends who are really hip and cool, and they do yoga. And, and they, they, they explain, they're like, man, yoga is such a great time because you're stretching, you're focused on nothing but like how much it hurts. And so you're trying to, to take away all that pain out of your mind. And so you, you meditate to empty yourself. And many times there's a, a leader, someone who's, who's guiding that meditation. And, these, pra- and these, these pastors that I talk to, and they're, they're fit and they're cool, uh, they're like, it's a great time to pray. Because, you know, they're trying to get you to empty yourself, to, den- to deny yourself. And they're like, that's like the Bible. Like you deny yourself and you, you accept Christ. And so they're, they're in those, those hot yoga studios or, or whatever yoga studios, and they're, they're stretching out and they're, um, they're praying. But I realize for the, for the rest of us, for the normal person, they're not always going to be directed towards praying to God. And so this idea of meditation ends up being, some, uh, ends up being more of the Buddhist idea, which is about emptying yourself, just denying yourself, being, being Zen, where it's no longer about your ego, your anxieties, your stress. Everything is just gone, and you're just in this place of bliss. That's not exactly what prayer is all about. Prayer is not just something that you do to, to de-stress. Prayer is not something you do just to, just to say, oh, I have all these worries, and, and if, I just, if I just say it, then it's going to be good. It's come to a point where there are even some believers, some Christians, who think, who have made prayer to be something where if you name it and claim it, you'll receive it. That if, if, if you say, I, I'm going to, to receive this, I'm going to get this, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to get it. And it's, it's brought up a false theology regarding prayer. At the core of what prayer is, and by no means am I an expert by no means am I am I someone who's even qualified, who should be able to even be qualified to tell you what prayer is. But at the end of the day, what I can say with confidence is prayer is not talking to God as if he was a genie or going to God as if he was a vending machine to go and press the right buttons to say the right words that God will produce an outcome that we desire. Instead, prayer does the exact opposite of that, that it's not us dictating to God what we want want from him it's actually God speaking to us what he wants from us and him explaining who we are our identity if you leave today without anything I want you to leave with one thing and that one thing is is this prayer helps us to understand God's identity but also helps us to understand our identity in him See, we come to the altar, we come to God with our construct, our understanding of who we are, our personality, our worries, our stress, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, everything we have that we've made up, that we've built up, what prayer does is we go to him with our identity, with what we have, and we say, Lord, not my will, but your will. And so everything we have, and that's the good and the bad, we say it's no longer mine. And so it does hold that similar idea to the Zen Buddhist. It is about denying yourself, emptying yourself, having that moment where you're just releasing and letting go of everything that you've built up. And that may just be a facade that you've built up to protect yourself from all the harsh realities of the world. But what does happen in prayer, because it's not simply a time of meditation, but it's a conversation with a living God that God doesn't leave you empty. He doesn't leave you there just to to be zen, to be cool, to be chill, to be worry-free. But instead, he begins to speak truth into you. He begins to speak into your life in a way that only you can understand. Only you can hear. And the way that we find the way in which we hear from God is through his word, through the Logos. So, today we're going to be going over the the story of Abraham and it's found in Genesis but before we turn there or as you're turning there uh, I'm, I'm here to also advertise a little bit. We, we're going to be having a Bible study series on the book of Genesis uh, starting the second week of October. So, uh, or actually, sorry, not next week, but the week after next, on the 15th of October, we'll be starting a Bible study on the book of Genesis. It's going to happen right after our fellowship time. So after you, get, you eat and, and, and you're, you're full and you'll probably even have some time to um, just grab some coffee and talk to someone. Uh, but we're going to, we're going to meet back at church um, in a room that fits in one of the classrooms. And we're going to go over an intensive study over the book of Genesis. Uh, and it's kind of, I, I, I haven't even laid out how many weeks it's going to be uh, because I have so much to say and, and teach on this book, on this amazing book. And it's going to be a little bit of the he, original Hebrew. It's going to be over the, the stories of patriarchs, over the story of creation, over the stories of everything. And so if you're just hungry, if you're interested, uh, I'm interested in feeding you. I'm interested in just teaching you what, what the word what the Word says, what, what the book of Genesis says. And so uh, October 15th, after our time of fellowship, we will be meeting for that Bible study. But really, the reason why I even want to have this Bible study is because these narratives, these stories of these people are so intense, they're so jam-packed with so many things that we need to take some time to go over it. But let me give you a little background with this guy, Abraham. So this guy Abraham, um, he grew up in a, in a place called Ur with his dad. And his dad, for whatever reason, just said, we're going to move. We're going to go and we're going to move to a different place. And so Abraham's moved up and they, they moved to this place called Haran. And in Haran, this is really where his dad just kind of sets his roots. And Abraham is, uh, is kind of living life. He's probably really wealthy. Uh, Abraham and his family, they weren't poor people. They were very wealthy. But Abraham hears a calling from God. And it's found in Genesis 12. And and the calling from God basically tells Abraham, asks Abraham, Abraham, if you are willing, go to the land that I will show you. Go to the place that I, I desire. And if you go there, when you go there, I will make you into a great nation. I will make you into a great nation. And through you, I will bless all other nations. And so Abraham hears that, he hears the voice of God, and his response is one of obedience. And he goes out to this promised land, to this place, and he settles there. And when he settles there, God explains to him again in Genesis chapter 15, and he says, this is my covenant with you. That before, it was my call, and because you responded in obedience, I unconditionally promised to you, I promise to you, I will make you a great nation. I will turn you into a great nation, one in which will be greater than the stars in the sky and of the sand, of the, the, the specks of sand by the, by the seashore. Your descendants, they will, they will overtake the gates of their enemies. Your descendants will be blessed. And so Abraham's like, man, this is awesome. But God even ends that covenant by saying something very, very specific. He says, through your blessing. Through the blessing of your, of your people, of, your, of the nation that I'm going to build from, from you, and through you, I'm going to bless the rest of the world. So imagine if you're Abraham. You're hearing this. You're like, man, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. Like, God has promised me. And the, the language that's used in that covenant, it's covenant language, that there's no strings attached. It's not as if God is going to say, you know what, you didn't follow the contract, and so it's null and void. The kind of covenant that's that God makes with Abraham is one that is set in stone, that it's dependent on, on the Lord, on the master to follow through on the covenant. And so Abraham understands the language God is using and saying, God, you have made an unconditional promise with me for my future generations. And so I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can, I can follow you. And so many times in Abraham's life and his journey, he does little things to kind of tweak the plan. He, he gets a little worried. He gets a little scared. And so there's things like he, he, he feels the pressure of having children of having children through his wife. And so he even he even um, sleeps with one of his handmaids that, that is actually, it was his wife's idea, but he sleeps with one of his handmaids and they have a child and he thinks, okay, through this child, God will complete his goal and destiny with me. And Abraham does this constantly. He does this where he's, he's always worried. He gets so worried that God's plan won't follow through to a point where when he meets the Pharaoh of Egypt, he says, oh, um, this is my sister, not my wife. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, just don't kill me because she's so beautiful. He, he does this so frequently where he's just constantly trying to save his own skin. And so we come to chapter 18 in Genesis. And the way chapter 18 starts is Sarah, after going through menopause, after going through a point of her life where she realized she can no longer have children any, any longer, she finds out she's pregnant. And she begins to laugh because it's just crazy. And, and it's funny because the name Isaac, if you know anyone named Isaac, the, the name Isaac means laughter. It means, it means he laughed. Because it's so crazy, it's so ridiculous that, 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 that she's pregnant. She's, she's like way past her prime, way past the, 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 the age she should be to have children. And she finds out she has children. And so Abraham, hearing it, begins to understand who God is. He begins to understand God isn't a God that works by our logic. He doesn't work by our, our scheming. That he's, he's not a God that just blesses things that we that we've contrived and come came up with. He, he's the kind of God that when he says he'll do something, he's gonna do it. And the way in which he does it, the way in which he goes about it is a way that is beyond our comprehension. And so again, this is where Abraham is coming from. And So if you would open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 18, we're going to read from verse 22 and on. So it says, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. Let me stop right there for a second. Abraham just found out that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham just found out that God has seen their sin, their wickedness, their evil, and how how disgusting they were as a people, and said, I need to cleanse. I I need to clean them. I I need to destroy them because they're so wicked. They've turned so utterly away from me that they need to be destroyed. They're like an infection, and and they have to be dealt with. And Abraham is, is, is like, man, this is crazy. As if, I mean, if God told me he was going to wipe out a people, I, I, a city, I would, I would definitely be shocked. And so that's kind of where we are. So it's, Then Abraham drew near and said to God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abram answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five Of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And then he said, I will not destroy it for if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This this passage has gotten a bad rap over the years. The reason why this passage has gotten a bad rap over the years is because of two things or or two perspectives regarding this passage. The first is, is that Abraham comes across as kind of a sleazy salesman as a negotiator. He's he's the guy that he hears this crazy news that God is going to destroy an entire city and actually sister city Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and God is, is so sick of them, and, and, and it's like, God is angry. He's going to destroy everything. And Abraham's like, oh, man, i got to stop this. I've got to figure a way to make this angry God stop from doling out his justice. And so Abraham goes in there and like, okay, okay, what's, the, what, what, what's, what's a good number? What's a good number? Okay, 50. Lord, if there are 50 righteous people, come on, relent. Please relent. And God's like, yeah, okay, 50. If there's 50 people, why would I destroy a city if there are 50 good people there? Abraham's like, man, okay, okay. Five less. God, if what, if, what if, like, out of, out of those 50 people, five people are just, like, kind of bad here and there? You know, like, then, then, would you still destroy them? I mean, that's just five people. So God's like, okay, 45. Abraham's like, okay, all right, I got them, I got rolling. So 40? God's like, okay, 40. 30. Yeah, sure, 30. 20. Okay, 20. If I may be so bold, I know we went from 50, now we're down to 10. 10 people. And God's like, okay. That's the first way that, that kind of detracts from the story, that makes this story just one of those stories that the pastors just gloss over many times. There's a second side, and it's this. It, it's, wait, wait, wait. If God's all-knowing, and he knows everything, and he, he knows every person that's in Sodom and Gomorrah, then before he even talked to Abraham, he knew that there weren't 10 people, that he knew there weren't 10 righteous people in the city, and so the negotiation wasn't really a negotiation. It was more of a trick, and, and God just playing capriciously with Abraham. It's like, Abraham, okay, if there's 50 people, I won't destroy it, but I know there's only like two. Okay, oh, 45, oh, I'm so gracious, 45. 40, 30, 20, okay, I'm so, because I'm such a gracious God, 10. But there's only Lot and his family, and even they're not very righteous. So God is painted as this kind of meaningless, a, a, a person who, who talks to you in a, in a way that doesn't really matter. And I realized both of these things are how we treat prayer and how we viewed prayer for so long. The first way is either we go into a position where we negotiate with God. We go to God and we say, God, I have a plan. I have a desire. If, if, if you let this happen, I will promise to do this. If you let me get this job promotion, I will go to church. If you, if you let my child go to the right college, I will serve I will serve in the homeless, the soup kitchen. If, if, you, if you make me feel better because I feel sick, I'm going through an illness, then I will give more money to the church. And we're constantly doing this with God where we're negotiating. And we're thinking that God's up there, and he's like kind of just thinking, good deal. That, that, we, we, we got a deal. If, if, you, if you do the right things, if you do good things, then I'll come through in your prayers. I will answer your prayer as long as you do this other thing. And we're like, man, this is good. Maybe I should ask for more. Like, I mean, God answered my prayer last time, and it was so good. Let me ask for more. And, and we become like Abraham, or at least how we portray Abraham as being. We have these conversations with guys like, man, God, last time you came through and uh, you allowed 50 people, now, now let's, let's go better. Like 40, 30, 20, 10. And So our prayers become more bold. We're, we're like, man, my prayer life is great because I'm asking God for these amazing, extravagant things because I know God is going is to answer them. Or we take that second stance where we're saying God already knows. God knows everything. God already, He has everything under control. He has everything in his hands. And so why even bother praying? God's going to do what he wants to do. If he wants to punish me, he's going to punish me. If he wants to bless me, he's going to bless me. What's the point of prayer? What's the point of praying when he's just going to do what he wants to do? Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though Abraham even interceded on their behalf, he prayed on their behalf, God still destroyed them. What's the point? And so don't worry, I'm not going to end the sermon there. It doesn't end with, with, with doom and gloom. But I want you to understand, I want us to understand what prayer is. And it's neither of those things. And it's so important we understand that it's neither of those things. And instead of us negotiating with God or just going to a stance says, God, you know what to do, just do it. I need us to understand that it's about Abraham in this story and what Abraham learns through this story. First and foremost, God cannot be changed. He cannot be swayed. He cannot be convinced. But what can happen is that we can become con- convinced. We have to understand the characteristic of God. God is perfect, meaning his plan is straight. His plan is true, and it's the best possible outcome for any of us. If we are perfectly in God's plan, it is the best. There is nothing that we can do that is better than God's plan. That is kind of the, the basic framework that I'm working with here. God's plan is the most prosperous for you. It is the one that will produce the most success out of you. And so when we go to God and we come with our plan, our, our, our criteria for what makes success, we're assuming something. We're assuming that my plan is going to work better than your plan, God. And I think this is actually a the, the great place to start prayer. I, I'm, being, I'm being totally serious. A great place to start prayer is in honesty. Speaking to God what you think is the best. Lord, I really want this promotion. I really want this raise. Lord, I really want my son and daughter to go to this school. Lord, I really want to date this person. Lord, I really, I, I really want to do this. I really want this. I really want that. The, the thing is this. Because we understand it's not a negotiation anymore. It's no longer about trying to trick God into giving what you want and trying to get, get what you desire. It's about being honest. And I think Abraham was being honest with God. He was saying, "God, you're a good God. Would, would you please spare this city? Would you please give me what I want and spare the city for 50 people?" And God, in, in a relationship, in a conversation, says exactly what a good, good father does. Yeah, son. Of course. Of course, I would not destroy that city if there were 50 good people. And then the the conversation continues and, and, and it gets better and better and to the point where Abraham's like super excited because he's like, man, if there's 10 people, God will relent from his destruction on the city. And so what happens after this story is Abraham goes out into the city searching for righteous people. He goes out into the city looking for people who love God, who want to follow God, who want to be with God. And Abraham is, he comes to a, An understanding. He comes to God's understanding of things. That that city was wicked. That city was evil. And not evil where there were redeeming qualities. And this is why I hate when pastors preach on Sodom and Gomorrah and say that Sodom and Gomorrah was better than our our culture today. I'm sorry. It is not the same. They were far more depraved than we ever are. It's just not. That's not a way because when we say that God is going to relent for 10 righteous people because we are covered by the blood of Jesus, there are way more than 10 righteous people in this room because of Christ and our desire to be with God and understand God. Sodom and Gomorrah was not like that. And again, if you go to the Bible study, we're going to go into depth about what Sodom and Gomorrah really was like and it's crazy. It's crazy how depraved they were, how how disgusting they were. So Abraham's going out there and he's seeing it with his eyes. He's talking with the people, trying to find the righteous people. And this is, this is, I think, the outcome of prayer in many ways. Abraham sees their sin. He sees that they're just irredeemable. Not because of God. God wants them to be redeemed. We see this time and time again, even in the Old Testament. Look at the, the story of, uh, of Jonah and, and the Ninevites. God wants to redeem an, a pagan, evil people. But Sodom and Gomorrah, well, they were the epitome of, of rebellion to God. And Abraham, again, is witnessing this. And So Abraham, because of his prayer, begins to understand the heart of God. See, Abraham understands that God wants to relent, that God wants to save the city on behalf of ten righteous people, that God is willing to do that. But as Abraham goes out and sees what is reality, he says, there aren't even ten righteous people. And so Abraham begins to understand God's plan. He says, God, you're, you're a good God. And you're not destroying the city because you're just angry. You're destroying the city because they're wicked. And they deserve it. And that's not easy to say. That's not easy to say. And th- I think this is why Abraham was so, it's so important that we look at this conversation in depth. His prayer was honest. Lord, please relent. And the answer from God was absolutely, I will relent. But the outcome of prayer, what was not Abraham getting his wish, it, it wasn't. Abraham didn't get what he wanted. When Abraham went into the conversation, he wanted Sodom and Gomorrah to be saved. That was not the answer to his prayer. God is not a vending machine. God is not someone that you just talk to and you just get what you want. What ended up happening, the, the, the outcome of it was, is that Abraham began to see with God's eyes. He saw how wicked they were and what they deserved. Again, I can only imagine truly how wicked they were. I, again, I don't think there's a... a even parallel or, or something that's similar in our day and age, I think it's way beyond our understanding of how wicked they were. So please don't use this as, as an example to say you can go out to the streets and tell everyone that they're going to burn in hell. That's, that's not what I'm saying. God isn't going to bring that same destruction on us because of Jesus. But again, the purpose of this prayer, the reason why it's so beautiful is because it's a conversation between a father and his son, because, between a master and his servant. Abraham was so honest in his approaching God. He was so bold in his approaching God. Because imagine, imagine if Abraham went to God and God just said no. Lord, would you you relent if there's 50 righteous people? God has all the right in the world to say no. Abraham, no. Not only that, but because you defied me, because you questioned me, you questioned my plan, you questioned my authority, I'm going to put you to death. Not at all. God is a dad. God is our father. He's our creator. He's the one who wove you together. He knows every strand of DNA in your body. He knows everything because he's the one who wrote it. So when Abraham comes in with this bold request, he understands Abraham better than Abraham understands himself. And So of course he didn't come with anger. He said, son, I understand where you're coming from. Your heart for these people, I have the same heart for those people. But here, I'll answer your prayer and you'll see what I see. You'll see with my perspective. My relationship with my father has evolved over the years. I grew up in a very strict household. And it's, it's, it's interesting because um, I, I had American friends or people that grew up here. I, I mean, I grew up here. I was born and raised here. But I had a lot of um, Caucasian friends, um, a lot of Hispanic friends, and a lot of you know, just different types of friends. And I was always jealous of, of people that had really close relationships with their dad. I remember one of my friends, like, the way they talked to their parents, it was, like, so refreshing at times. Because they went to their, their parents, they're like, hey, dad, you want to go watch the game later? And, the, and their dad was like, nah, I'm good. I'm like, like, how can you talk to your dad like that? That's crazy. Because the way it worked for me when I was growing up is I avoided my dad. I avoided him like, like the plague. Because I was so afraid. I was so scared. I, I think it it came from the fact i was the only boy oh, I, was, I have an older sister and a younger sister and the way my dad talked to the girls was, so, was such gentleness <laughs> you know he, he like I, I i i i get it now i you know i have i have a daughter and and when when emery speaks to me my daughter speaks to me i'm like oh like oh yeah whatever you want and that's how my dad spoke to the girls it was it was oh like yeah you, you, yeah of course here take my credit card you know take here take my wallet whatever you need and and he, there's so much joy but when it's me it's like you know my, um, you know, it's just crazy. Anyways, um, <laughs> it it just built up this um, this resentment and bitterness and fear that was inside of me because I was so, I was so afraid of pro- approaching him for anything, uh, especially when I got in trouble, especially when I did the wrong thing. Um, if if I got into an accident or if I if I broke something, oh, when I broke something, oh, that was the scariest. I learned instead of instead of telling Dad you broke it, instead of telling him. Uh, even if you whine and dine him, you, you, you give him all the, the right situations to, to put him in the best mood, but, you know, you still broke something, and so you don't want to go through that. And so you learn how to fix things on your own. And so that was kind of my thing, is I would break something, and I'd be like, oh, shoot, and I would learn how to fix it. And so no one would know that it was even broke in the first place. And then a few months later, someone would find out, hey, this isn't how it was. Oh, no, 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 I improved it. You know, I made, I made it better than before. It got to a point where I was in college, and I wouldn't really call home very much. Um, college was a time for me to be free and independent, away from the fear of, of my, my, my family, my parents. And I went to the University of Texas, and my little sister also went there. And so when I was a senior, she was a freshman. I remember there was one time I was talking to her, and she had this really nice portable hard drive. And, and I, was, I was super jealous. I was like, where did you get that nice portable hard drive? You know how much that costs? That's like, it's super big. It's, it's, it has a lot of storage. Like, that's really nice. And she goes, oh, dad bought it for me. And I'm like, what? What do you mean he bought it for you? Like, yeah, I just asked him, and and he bought it for me. I was like, what would you ask him? Like, I was trying to figure out, like, what are the right words I need to say that he'll buy me something like that. And she goes, I didn't even really ask him. I just said, Dad, I I need more storage. And and he's like, okay. And he he went to the store, and he bought it, and he came back, and he's like, here you go. And I'm like, man, Jamie, you're so lucky. Like, you're so lucky. Like, if I did that, there's no way Dad would, would respond like that to me. The funny thing is this, now that I'm an adult, um, I have my own family, I have a wife and a daughter, I realize something, as, um, as my dad and I have learned to love each other so much, and I love my dad incredibly, he's, he's an amazing man, he's, he's a mentor to me, and we, we still argue about so many things, I mean, but it's, it's in a way now that there's no fear. I, I don't have this anxiety when I go to him, because I know he loves me, I know he cares about me, he, he wants the best for me. We now have a relationship to the point where I can go to him and I can say, Dad, that's crazy. Like, what you just said right there is insane. And trust me, there are so many things in our household that said that it's just off the wall. And, and, and we have these conversations that before, what would have happened was is I would have expected the fire and the brimstone type of, of response. And now, because we have a relationship and my dad is such a great guy and I understand where he's coming from, there's a, more candor in our conversation there's more depth there's less fear that now when i talk to him i can express my anxieties my worries He can tell me his critiques, his criticism, his outlook. And I'm not offended. I'm not scared of him. If anything, I appreciate it because I love him. I care about him. There's a bond. And so I'm still really jealous when people are super close with their fathers. But also at the same end, I'm still working on a great relationship with my dad. And so I no longer am am seething with jealousy. I'm just saying, okay, that's the goal I want to get to. So now the conversations with my dad are, are much deeper now I know if I need something, I can ask him, and he's going to say, yeah. He's gonna, we're going to figure out a way to get it done. And I also know the same way goes with, with him to me. When, when he asks me to do something, even if I don't want to do it, I'll say, yeah, I'll do it. Because you're my dad, and I'm going to do whatever it takes for you. Our sermon series is over prayer life. The way we need to start understanding what prayer life is, it's not about negotiating with God. It's not about God knowing everything so we don't even need to talk to him because he's got everything in his hands. That is a very immature response to prayer. That, is my, that was my response during college. I don't need to talk to my parents. They're, they're all good. They, they, they know what they're doing. Their lives are set. They, they'll be fine without me. Prayer is about communication with someone you love, someone you care about. And as you talk to them, it's, it's not about imparting your wisdom on them. It's not about imparting what you know to God. It's actually saying that moment, God, this is what's going on in my life. These are my anxieties. These are my needs. These are my, my joys. These are, this is what's going on. And God having the right to speak truth into your life. See, my son, my daughter, take a look at, at this. Take a look at from this perspective. See, this is why I'm doing this in the way I'm doing it. Understand me. Understand my heart. And if we're like Abraham, even if God, even when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, because we already had that conversation with him, because we already spoke to him in our prayer life, and even though the world may look at our prayers and say, see, your prayer wasn't answered. They died. That we'll say, no, God is still good. God is the one who walked through with me, through my loss, through my pains. I love him. I care about him. And I'll continue for the rest of my days to pray to him because he answers my prayers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are your children through the blood of Jesus. God, that we, we are given the privilege, the right to call ourselves your sons and daughters because Jesus died on that cross for us. Lord, that you would love us in that way. And Father, I I, I repent forever looking at you as an angry and wrathful God, but when you are so gentle and so loving and so caring. Father, I pray that we would get to know your character. And Father, we would learn to embrace our identity as your children. God, that we would have a boldness like Abraham to come to you in honesty, saying what is on our minds, what we think, our thoughts, our prayers. Father, we love you. We want to get to know you better. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.